Welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the abdominal wall, retroperitoneal and urogenital module from the general surgical curriculum. And this series is essentially going to be focusing on all the urology topics from this module. So we're firstly going to start, as we do with most of these new topics, by talking about some anatomy and embryology of the urological organs. So to start us off today, let's talk a little bit about the kidneys. The kidneys are paired structures in the retroperitoneum that sit largely under the cover of the costal margin. The right kidney sits slightly lower than the left kidney due to the liver pushing it uh, in a more inferior direction. And the hilum of the kidneys are about at the level of the transpyloric plane, with the right kidney being just below this and the hilum of the left kidney being just above this. Both kidneys are enclosed in Jarota's fascia, and then there is perinephric fat that sits outside of the kidney's capsule, but within Jarota's fascia. In terms of the relationships of the kidneys, Posteriorly, the kidneys are related to the diaphragm and the quadratus lumborum muscles, and they also overlap medially onto the psoas muscle. The superior relations of the kidneys include the suprarenal glands or the adrenal glands. The right adrenal gland is pyramidal in shape and sits on the superior aspect of the right kidney versus the left adrenal gland, which is more crescenteric in shape and sits more uh, medial to the upper pole of the left kidney. The anterior relationships of the kidneys are different on each side. So on the right side, there's the right lobe of the liver and the gallbladder. The duodenum is associated with the right kidney anteriorly. And the right kidney is also related to the right colon and the ascending branch of the right colic artery. The left kidney's anterior relations include the tail of the pancreas and the splenic flexures. The left colic artery crosses over the left kidney and the upper part of the left kidney is also associated with the lesser sac. When you look at a kidney, you can see that it looks like a kidney bean shape and you'll be able to see three structures exiting at the renal hilum. The most anterior of these structures is the renal vein. Behind that is the renal artery and behind that is the renal pelvis. In terms of the blood supply of the kidney, as I've mentioned, there is a renal artery on either side. The kidneys are supplied by these paired arteries that originate off the aorta at approximately the L2 level. And these arteries enter the kidney and essentially supply the kidney in five segments. So it's sort of like five uh, end arteries to five different segments of the kidney. There may be anatomical variation to the way that the branches um, branch and they may occur quite far away from the kidney or they may occur um, right at the renal hilum, but usually there's an anterior and posterior branch. The posterior branch supplies the posterior 
segment of the kidney, and the anterior branch supplies the apical, upper, middle, and lower segments of the kidney. It's important to understand this anatomy and to look at individual scans if you're doing surgery on the kidney, especially for transplants, as if you miss a vessel to a segment of the kidney, then that part obviously won't have blood supply and won't work. And also if there's multiple early branches, it may not be a kidney that can be transplanted because there would be too many anastomoses. So that's why it's important to understand this anatomy. The venous drainage of the kidney is uh, less strict. There's usually a number of veins that all communicate and eventually drain into a single renal vein. The renal veins are different on either side. So the right renal vein is quite short um, and will usually not receive any tributaries. So this drains directly into the inferior vena cava, which obviously sits on the right of the midline, which is why there's a short right renal vein. But the left renal vein is longer and it has to cross the midline and it usually does this by crossing anterior to the aorta and that's why we need to move it around and get it out of the way when we're performing aortic surgery as we talked about in some of the trauma episodes. And so the left renal vein will receive a suprarenal or adrenal vein and also receives the um, gonadal vein on the left. So this is either the testicular or the ovarian vein drains into the left renal vein, which does have some clinical relevance. So that's something to know about as well. Very, very briefly, I'll mention a little bit of embryology of the kidney. I definitely didn't learn this for my exam, but in my exam, I got asked about the embryology of the uh, testicular veins. So I guess this is technically fair game. So the kidneys develop from the mesonephric duct or the Wolfian duct. So just above the mesonephric or Wolfian duct, there is the development of multiple tubules that are called the metanephros. And the metanephros basically develop into the parenchyma of the kidney. The mesonephric duct gives off a number of buds. So the first bud is the ureter that grows out of the mesonephric duct. And then the mesonephric duct itself goes on to become the bladder. And in the male the mesonephric duct or Wolfian duct also turns into the ductus deferens and associated structures. The ureteric bud grows upwards and divides into the calyces of the pelvis of the collecting system of the kidney. And this grows up into the uh, metanephros, which is all of those tubules and the parenchyma of the kidney that I mentioned earlier. Okay, let's get back on track and talk a little bit about the ureter. So the ureter is 25 centimetres long and it starts at the pelvi-ureteric junction and enters into the trigone of the bladder. It is a smooth muscle white tube with some small vessels on top of it and it has peristaltic activity that is commonly called vermiculation of the ureter. The ureter is supplied with longitudinal blood supply that is segmental. So proximally, it is supplied by branches off the renal artery itself. In the middle part, it's supplied by branches off the 
testicular or the um, ovarian vessels or gonadal vessels, they're called. And then um, lower down, they're supplied by branches off the internal iliac artery, probably the um, vesicular vessels. This is important to know because all of this blood supply runs in the tissue around the ureter. So if you strip the ureter of the fatty tissue and adventitial tissue around it, you can devascularize the ureter and therefore you can get strictures. And also when we transplant kidneys, we don't take a super long length of ureter because only the proximal segment is going to be supplied by the renal vessels. So again, you don't want an ischemic anastomosis. So they love to ask us about how to find the ureter and so understanding the passage of the ureter from the renal pelvis down to the bladder is important. So firstly, it's obviously in the retroperitoneum. It descends on psoas major and it is crossed by the gonadal vessels. So if you can see them and keep them down when you're mobilizing the colon, then you know that you'll be uh, in front of the ureter. It then crosses over the bifurcation of the iliac arteries. And on the left, this happens at the base of the sigmoid mesocolon. And on both sides, this is happening at the level of the sacroiliac joint. Once the ureter reaches the pelvis, it runs over the external iliac artery and vein and down the side wall of the pelvis in front of the internal iliac artery. It crosses the obturator nerve, the obliterated umbilical artery, the obturator artery, and the obturator vein. And once it reaches the level of the ischial spine, it turns forward and passes medially on the pelvic floor to enter into the base of the bladder. In the male, the ductus deferens crosses the ureter superficially, and in the female, the ureter is lying at the base of the broad ligament and it adheres to the posterior layer and is crossed superficially by the uterine artery. So a little bit about the bladder now. The bladder is a extraperitoneal pelvic organ that sits in the anterior aspect of the pelvis it is comprised of smooth muscle called the detrusor muscle, and the muscle fibers are arranged in uh, whirls and spirals so that it can um, contract and expel urine rather than needing a peristalsis action. When you're looking at the bladder from a intraperitoneal perspective, you'll see that there is a, a fold extending in the midline, which is the remnant of the uracus, and you can get uracal cysts along this tract or a persistent connection between the umbilicus and the dome of the bladder. More laterally, there's two folds, which are the remnant umbilical arteries. And then more laterally to that are the lateral umbilical folds, which are the inferior epigastric vessels. I do digress from the bladder a little bit though. So the bladder itself, as I've said, sits in the extra peritoneal position. It's approximately a upside down shaped cone and has a sort of flat apex and comes down to a narrow inferior surface, which is the lowest part of the bladder. And this is where posteriorly the trigone is, which is where the two ureters enter in. And then this all comes down to the urethra and the internal urethral orifice at the lowest part of the bladder. Then there's different anatomy depending on whether we're talking about a man or a female. 
in a female, the urethra passes uh, down and through the pelvic floor, as we all know. And in a male, there is the prostate that sits just below the internal urethral orifice and surrounds the prostatic urethra. The urethra in the male then passes through the base of the penis as the membranous urethra and then through the penis itself as the spongy urethra and then exits at the external urethral meatus. I'm jumping around a little bit, but going back to the bladder, the blood supply or arterial supply of the bladder is via the internal iliac arteries with the superior and inferior vesicle arteries supplying most of the blood to the bladder. And the venous drainage of the bladder doesn't actually follow the arteries. It forms a plexus that converges down on the groove between the bladder and the prostate in men or the lower part of the bladder in women and drains backwards across the pelvic floor to the internal iliac veins. The nervous innervation of the bladder is mostly um, autonomic and so parasympathetic innervation is via the pelvic splanchnic nerves and sympathetic innervation is from sympathetic fibers from the L1 and 2 spinal segments via the superior hypogastric and pelvic plexuses. The sensation of a full bladder travels with the parasympathetic fibers along the pelvic splanchnic nerves, and this causes a essentially spinal cord reflex that causes contraction of the bladder. This can be overcome via the brain um, and this can inhibit contraction with practice and uh, training as we get older to control the detrusor muscle. And if there is destruction of the sacral segments, so these uh, pelvic splanchnic nerves, then the detrusor muscle gets paralyzed and the bladder becomes abnormally distended until patients get overflow incontinence. Or if there's a spinal cord transection above the level of S2, then the impulse that tells the brain that there is um, a distended bladder can't reach the brain, and therefore that inhibitory control is lost. The other thing to mention is that in both women and men, there is an external sphincter of skeletal muscle that's controlled by the perineal branch of the pudendal nerve through parasympathetics. And so when the detrusor muscle contracts, the external sphincter muscle will relax. But in men, they also have a second sphincter muscle. And so this is the internal sphincter muscle. And this is supplied by sympathetic fibers. And this is why, especially post-operatively, when there's an overstimulation of the sympathetic system, um, some men go into urinary retention because this sphincter doesn't relax and doesn't allow them to pass urine. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the spermatic cord and the testes. So the spermatic cord is the structure that runs from the deep inguinal ring down to the testes. For some reason, they love to ask about the spermatic cord. So you need to know about the coverings or the fascial layers. And so this includes the internal spermatic fascia, the cremasteric fascia in the middle, and the external spermatic fascia. These fascias are essentially formed by structures of the abdominal wall, so the internal spermatic fascia is derived from the transversalis fascia at the deep inguinal ring. 
Then the middle covering, the cremasteric fascia, which also is composed of the cremaster muscle, originates from the internal oblique and transverse abdominus muscles. And the external somatic fascia originates from the fibers of the external oblique aponeurosis at the superficial inguinal ring. And then there is a number of structures within the spermatic cord that they also love to ask about and you just have to memorize. So I always remembered that there were three things that didn't sort of fit nicely into other groups. So this is the ductus deferens, the processus vaginalis, and the pampiniform plexus of veins. Then there's three arteries. There's the testicular artery, the artery to the ductus and the cremasteric artery. Then there are two nerves, the genital branch of the genitofemoral nerve and sympathetic fibers to the arteries. And then there's also lymphatics. In terms of the arteries as well, they asked this in my exam and they said, what if you cut the testicular artery, will the testicle die? And the answer is no, there's three arteries and they do have some anastomosis within the cord and they come from different vessels. So the testicular artery is essentially the gonadal vessels. So these are paired structures that originate off the lateral aspect of the aorta. Then there is the cremasteric artery, and this originates from the inferior epigastric vessels. And I remember that because the cremasteric muscle and inferior epigastrics are going to the muscle of the abdominal wall. And then the um, artery to the ductus deferens, this originates from the superior or inferior vesicle. And I remember that because the ductus deferens is coming from the pelvis where the bladder is, and it's the superior or inferior vesicle arteries that supply or um, originate uh, to form the artery to the ductus deferens. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the testes. So when you look at the testes, you can see that there is the actual oval-shaped testes itself, and then also the epididymis attached to the uh, superior posterior aspect of the testes. The testes has a number of layers, so it has a very strong covering called the tunica albuginea, which is the kind of white layer that surrounds the testes itself. Outside of that is the tunica vaginalis, and this is the space where the fluid of a hydrocele would accumulate. And this is, as you could probably guess, the remnant or the end part of the processus vaginalis. So it sort of wraps around the testes, with the testes itself being covered by the tunica albuginea. The testes obviously sits within the scrotum, and overlying the testes are a number of sort of thin layers that when you are operating on the scrotum, you have to cut through. And these thin layers are remnants of the layers we just talked about of the spermatic cord. Um, so you'll go through the skin and then the datos muscle and then through the uh, uh, fascia of the external spermatic fascia, the cremasteric muscle, the internal spermatic fascia before you get down onto the tunica vaginalis. The testicle is supplied by the testicular artery, which I've mentioned is a branch of the pudendal artery, and it's drained by a series of intercommunicating veins, which form the pampiniform plexus of veins. And this is important because this plexus of veins keeps the testes at a lower level 
of temperature than the body temperature in order to make a um, good environment for spermatogenesis. On the left side, the pampuniform plexus becomes the gonadal vein and this drains directly into the left renal vein. And it's said to do this at um, more of a right angle than the right gonadal vein drains into the IVC. And this therefore predisposes to the development of a varicocele um, or distended veins more commonly on the left than on the right. The venous drainage of the testes is really important, especially when thinking about testicular cancer. So the lymphatic drainage for the testes runs with the spermatic cord up into the retroperitoneum and into the retroperitoneal lymph nodes. So it does not drain through the scrotal skin into inguinal nodes. And so if you cut into a tumor via a scrotal incision, you can actually seed tumor into the scrotal skin and into the lymphatics that drain into the inguinal nodes. And so that's why we uh, approach a testicular cancer through a inguinal incision instead. A little bit of embryology of the testes. So the testes are derived from the gonadal ridge in the retroperitoneum, just inferior to the kidneys. They descend down the retroperitoneum and by the fourth month of fetal life, they lie near the deep inguinal ring. By the seventh month, they usually descend through the deep inguinal ring and progress through the inguinal canal and into the scrotum. This process is guided by a, uh, I guess, sheet of tissue called the gubernaculum, which is attached to the scrotum and to the testes and sort of shortens and pulls the testes down. And as part of this process, a fold of peritoneum is brought with the testes into the inguinal ring, and this is called the processus vaginalis. And the processus vaginalis usually becomes obliterated, except at the lower end, which becomes the um, tunica vaginalis. But if it doesn't obliterate, then you can get cysts or a patent um, processus vaginalis leading to a um, inguinal hernia. Um, and you can also get hydrocele's because of, um, uh, of this as well and fluid passing down there. So um, it's important to understand that process because obviously that has relevance to inguinal hernia repairs and pediatric inguinal hernias as well. The other clinical relevance is that if you have a non-descended testes, the undescended testes can be found at any point along their line of descent. So in the retroperitoneum, in the inguinal canal, and sometimes in unusual places, uh, such as in the skin of the groin or the abdominal wall. And so you need to look in all of those places in order to find the undescended testes if you can't palpate it within the inguinal canal. And then the other thing is that the cremaster muscle actually draws the testes up towards the body. And in children, you can get an overactive um, cremasteric muscle that Uh, can cause the testes to be pulled back up into the inguinal canal. And so this is not a undescended testes or cryptorchidism. This is just a retracted testes. And this often improves with time and uh, often is in the, uh, the testes is in the scrotum when you're not examining the child and the cremasteric muscle is not active. So to finish us off, we'll talk a little bit about the ductus deferens and also the seminal vesicles. 
So the ductus deferens emerges from the epididymis of the testes as a single tube, which passes within the spermatic cord through the inguinal canal and enters the sidewall of the pelvis through the deep inguinal ring. It passes deep to the inferior epigastric arteries, which obviously sit medial to the deep inguinal ring, and it crosses over the external iliac artery and vein, the obliterated umbilical artery, the obturator nerve artery and vein, and then curves medially and crosses above the ureter to approach the midline. The ductus deferens then sit next to each other and dilate into an ampulla, which lie parallel and medial to the seminal vesicles. And the seminal vesicles drain fluid into the uh, ductus deferens to contribute to the ejaculatory fluid. Seminal vesicles are thin-walled sacs, and they look like sort of folded uh, tubules, and they basically just produce seminal fluid, and they sit at the base of the bladder just above the prostate. These are really important for general surgery because they sit um, just in front of the rectovesical fascia. And so with rectal dissection, um, there's only a very thin layer of tissue between the anterior mesorectum and the seminal vesicles. So they can be damaged and are sometimes taken um, intentionally if there is a close margin on a rectal cancer. So the ampulla of the ductus deferens and the outlet of the seminal vesicles join together to form the ejaculatory duct, and these pass through the prostate to open into the side of the urethras. And that covers all of the anatomy and a little bit of embryology that you might need to know for the urological organs. I hope you enjoyed this episode and are looking forward to this series on urology. I'll try to get some guests on the podcast because it's obviously not my area of specialty to lend us a hand with understanding the things we need to know for this module. Thanks for listening. Please rate the podcast. Leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or send me a message on social media to let me know what you're enjoying and what you aren't. And uh, please subscribe because it does make it easier for other people to find and listen to the podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>